Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover on the show. I also swear on occasion, sometimes a little more often than that, and I don't edit them out, so listener discretion is advised. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters. Hello all, I'm Ruby and this is episode 43 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ideas on how we can do better for future generations. My family is vaccinated in approaching two-week status, and our freedom is upon us. I got to see people. It was awesome. Spent Monday through Friday at Batula Beach with 17 people I hadn't seen in more than a year. I can't wait to get into things I do with others again, like painting chocolates and making face masks. Assuming Delta doesn't come and ruin everything for all of us, I plan to do things with people this winter as much as possible. Maybe I'm not an introvert anymore? I don't know. We'll see. Anyway... On with the show. If you have joined me before, thank you for returning. If this is your first time listening to my rants of anger and excitement, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. I've shared articles from science-based medicine before. It's run by a skeptic for whom I have the utmost respect, and the writers there have never let me down. They know their shit and cover topics that are not just currently relevant, but crucially important. If you go there, you will find an article published on July 16th by Jonathan Howard. And if you have had people in your life telling you that COVID-19 is no more dangerous than the flu, then this one is worth a read. At the very least, it will provide you with some facts to smack them in the face with. Not that facts work with these folks these days, but whatever. Have you heard people say that kids will be fine? Kids don't need the vaccine. Kids don't die of the flu after all. Yeah, well, the last year has shown us differently, hasn't it? While there are some people who can be respected for coming out and admitting they were terribly mistaken, way too many refuse to live in reality, refuse to ever admit they could have possibly been wrong. So what are the numbers with kids? Well, in the U.S. last year, the flu killed one child, and COVID-19 killed nearly 500, 490 children under 17. And we know that this number is conservative because it's only reflective of the number of people analyzed. And that only consisted of 8% of the total number of COVID deaths. Take that in for just a moment. Only 8% of COVID deaths were analyzed and they came up with 490 children under 17 dead. While the one death to flu occurred during flu season when such deaths are expected to occur, The COVID deaths happened all year round. Now consider those numbers from before and imagine how bad it would have been if isolating and homeschooling had not been done anywhere. That's a hell of a lot of dead kids, man. Even if we just look at the flu on a normal year when no isolating is happening, deaths of children range from 37 to 199 during flu season. Well less than half of the child COVID deaths with isolating. This number went up in the 2009-2010 flu season during H1N1. There were 358 child deaths from the flu that year, still way below what we have seen with COVID with safety measures. Now, the part that may confuse people is that overall, there is a slightly lower risk of dying from catching COVID as compared to catching the flu. Okay, that's true. 
but it's being represented by dumbasses like it means something. The reason it doesn't, COVID is much more contagious. If thousands times more people catch it, then thousands of times more people are going to die. And this has the ability to spread through schools and other kid groups quickly and efficiently. Maybe your snot-nosed kid won't die from it, but if they were in contact with dozens of kids who are in turn in contact with dozens of other kids who go home to infant siblings, it may not be your kid, but some kids are going to die because of it. Also, if you know anything about how things evolve, you know that the more something is allowed to multiply, the larger the chances of mutation. And those mutations will be able to take out even more people than the previous versions. It will go on and on until enough people are vaccinated or dead. When it comes to COVID-19 and the flu, the article at sciencebasemedicine.org states that both can kill hundreds of children per year. Both can send tens of thousands of children to the hospital, some needing ICU. Both can be largely prevented with underused vaccines. So get vaccinated so that more people can claim their social lives back and those of us who are just restarting social activity won't be forced to stop again. Get vaccinated to protect the immune compromised. Get vaccinated to protect our elders and infants. Get vaccinated because it's the right thing to do. It's the humanist thing to do. Oh, and be skeptical, damn it. Vanilla. Vanilla is my favorite scent and flavor, and yes, it is a flavor. I've heard rumors about the artificial stuff coming from the anal glands of beavers or something like that, but whatever. I never really cared if it was true or not. Lots of flavors and scents come from animal glands. It's really not that unusual. But to get that vanilla flavor from plastic? Researchers have apparently been successful at converting plastics into vanilla flavoring using a genetically engineered bacteria. My first thoughts are, why? And who first thought of this? And I know we consume about a credit card sized amount of plastic each year, but we don't do that on purpose. Are we really going to start making food products from plastics and consume them on purpose? I mean, I get it. Environmentally thinking, this is a way to make use of plastics which are already going to be sticking around pretty much forever. To be able to upcycle plastic waste into an industry chemical in high demand and short supply, that's, that's a big deal. And vanillin, the primary component of vanilla bean extract, is a limited resource. Demands keep increasing, and this may be a way to meet them in the long run. Vanillin is regularly used in dairy products, sodas, cosmetics, and much more. I read that this is the first time a valuable chemical compound was developed from plastic waste. Yes, vanillin is considered a valuable chemical compound, as it should be. They begin with a process which was already known, where enzymes break down plastic bottles made from polyethylene terephthalate, PET, into terephthalic acid, TA. Terephthalic acid, yes. In the new step, the acid is then converted into vanillin using a modified version of the bacteria Escherichia coli. Escherichia coli. Yeah, I don't pronounce well. According to the Smithsonian, because both chemical compounds are similar, the microbes could easily transform the acid into vanillin. Future planned studies will focus on how the bacteria can be used to increase the amount of TA converted into vanillin and scale it up. This would help clear up more plastic and create more needed vanilla. I still feel weird about it as a food. I totally get it for makeup and stuff like that, but something we consume? 
I do get that changing the molecular structure of something, which this does, can change it into something completely different. So I really shouldn't be as disturbed by it as I am. I should probably just get over it, because in the end, this could end up being beneficial as a whole. This study was published in Green Chemistry. So this one is sad, sorry. On episode 331, I covered seagrass meadows, and since then they have come up quite a few times, actually. Well, here it is again. We are seeing record deaths of manatees in Florida due to the die-off of these nutritious meadows. This increase in deaths is being primarily driven by starvation. In a six-month period, 841 manatees were lost. 63 were killed from being hit by boats, but the rest appear to have died from starvation. 841 is a huge number to be lost for something with a population of less than 10,000. And this breaks the annual record in just half a year. More manatees have died in six months than any other entire year in recorded Florida history. The only year where anything close to this was lost was when there was an outbreak of toxic red tide, which is the result of algae blooms taking over, blocking out the sun and eating up the oxygen. According to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the majority of the seagrass has been lost in the Indian River Lagoon. So the majority of the deaths are occurring during colder months when manatees migrate through this area. On a more recent episode, I had an update on how we figured out how it can take about 20 years for seagrass meadows to come back on their own if they're given perfect circumstances, one of which is being left the fuck alone. Sorry if I'm bringing you all down with this one, but it's something I think people should be aware of. I'd like to talk about bees today because they are pretty fucking awesome. Bees are insects which are most closely related to ants and wasps. There are seven families of bees containing over 20,000 species. Here in Canada, we have over 180 different species, including one with blue bees and one with metallic green bees. I really want to see one of each of these in person someday. Most bees actually do not make honey, but almost all are still very important to our food security and the maintenance of so many habitats. If you like honey and or honeybees, by the way, especially if you are in Manitoba, Follow Rebecca at Prairie Sweetheart Honey on Facebook and Instagram and visit her webpage and sign up for a newsletter at prairiesweetheartshoney.com. Bees and other pollinators are worth $215 billion to farmers worldwide. Other pollinators include butterflies, flies, ants, beetles, wasps, moths, and even sometimes bats and birds. But bees are definitely number one. The seven families have slight differences. Andronidae, also known as mining bees, are solitary and make their nests in the ground. They are found in temperate regions and mainly active in the early evening as they can't really see at night and they're unable to tolerate the heat during the day. The Apidae family contains 5,700 species, including the bumblebee, honeybee, stingless bees, carpenter bees, and orchid bees. These species live in colonies with one queen and lots of worker bees. A note about the stingless bees, apparently they're actually cultivated across the world for both pollination and honey production. The Colletidae family are also known as plaster bees because of the way they smooth the walls of their hives. A secretion from their mouths is spread on the walls and it dries into a cellophane-like lining. I didn't see it stated, but I presume it would be rather weather resistant. There are 2,000 species in this family. While bees of this family may nest in a collective hive, they are mainly solitary bees. Bees of the Colletidae family are found all over the world, and I keep wanting to call them the Colletidae family. Colletidae? Colletidae. Colletidae family. Anyways, it's an interesting name. 
The Halidity family are also known as sweat bees. The reason? They like to drink up the sweat off of people as a source of salt. That was one I never heard of before. These are ground nesters and are a lot smaller than most bees. They're found across the world and can be recognized by their metallic sheen. We tend to leave them alone because they're not very good at making either honey or pollinating plants. They sound kind of pretty though. Megachilidae or Megachilidae, I couldn't find which one is appropriate, are solitary bees with extraordinarily large mandibles and heads. They make up 15 to 20% of the total bee population, with 630 species in North America. They carry pollen a bit differently than other bees under their abdomen rather than on their hind legs. This family has the most diverse nesting habits, using mud, gravel, resin, plant fiber, and wooden pulp to build hives. So it's no surprise that mason bees are a part of this family. Another species of bee from this family are called carter bees. They are the largest bees in the world and extremely effective pollinators. Apparently farmers all over the world rear them in order to aid in this way. The Melitidae family has three subspecies and about 200 species in it. These ones are solitary foragers who prefer nesting in the ground over trees. And finally, the Stenotridae family has two subfamilies and 21 species. They are large, fast-flying bees found in Australia. They're described as densely hairy, and that makes me want to touch one. The great variety out there is mainly due to bees learning and evolving in different areas of the world, with different challenges thrown at them. Remember how scared everyone was for our bees when those killer hornets started being found in North America? The reason they weren't a problem in their original habitats overseas is that the bees there have had to deal with them for countless generations and have evolved ways of defending themselves, some of which are pretty cool by the way. In one case, several bees will surround an invading hornet and vibrate their wings fast enough to generate heat. It can get up to 45 degrees Celsius, and the enclosed wasp is literally roasted alive. They have to execute this move fast though, or the wasp will let out pheromones that will attract other wasps to come and help. These families all share some commonalities too. They have four wings which lock together to form two larger wings when they fly. They can distinguish between their own scent, the scent of a relative, and the scent of a stranger. For those species with a queen, if the queen dies, the workers can select a young larva, feed it special food called royal jelly, and it will develop into a fertile queen. Of all the insects in the world, and I believe that's in the millions if not billions, bees are the only ones that make something consumed by humans. But they are so much more important than just their sweet, sweet honey. Without bees, our diets would become a whole lot more limited. For example, the plants used to feed and sustain our livestock are dependent on bees. Without buzzing little helpers, the feed supply would be greatly affected and in turn the meat supply would be greatly affected. No bees would put us at an increased risk for malnutrition issues with increasing deficiencies in vitamin A, iron and folate acid. Sheila Kola, Assistant Professor of Environmental Science at York University and Director of the Native Pollinator Research Lab, told CBC, quote, Approximately one in three bites of every meal is made possible by the activity of wild bees, unquote. That's a lot. And Kyle Bobbywash, Assistant Professor in the Department of Entomology here at the University of Manitoba, headed a study published in the journal Biological Sciences. This shows that the decline in both wild and managed bees has negatively affected crops in British Columbia and across the U.S. They even make what does grow more robust and flavorful. 
There is clear evidence that natural pollination by the right type of bee improves the quality, nutrition value, and shelf life of a crop. Even appearance can be affected. For example, bumblebees and solitary bees feed from different parts of the strawberry flowers, and somehow the combination of the two tends to produce larger, more evenly shaped strawberries. We really do need these perfectly adapted pollinators to grow, breed, and produce plant products, be they for food or medicine. Plants overwhelmingly depend on bees. Over 90% of our plant-based foods would be at risk without them. 90%! I should also mention that they pollinate wildflowers and make fields pretty, but I'm not a fan of flowers. But of course, I want bees available for those flowers with medical properties, which can be extracted, and flavors like vanilla. Okay, flowers aren't all bad, I guess. I, I hate perfumey smells. Flower scents suck. There, I said it. Go ahead and come at me. Moving on. It turns out different species take care of different plants in some cases. There have been correlations shown in the decline in bees and the decline in the plants that they pollinate. So losing just one species of bee has the potential of having rather quick effects on the surrounding habitat. Lose several species and both food and habitats will be lost for all sorts of Earth's creatures. They, along with other pollinators, are a crucial part of maintaining healthy ecosystems. So bees rock. But we have all heard about the declines over the last 20 or 30 years, right? These declines have been found all over the world. Humans clearing out land is one of the problems. Habitats are lost in this way every day. Land clearing has also taken away their varied food sources. When these lands are cleared to make way for a single crop, it's even worse as all biodiversity is eliminated. Pesticides are another big killer. Insecticides today are up to 120 times more toxic to honeybees than they once were. And of course, global warming and these hot, dry summers do a number on them as well. There have also been cases of farmers bringing bees in from other places, only to find out that these bees carried parasites, which could devastate local populations. We can help the bees in our neighborhoods. During hot, dry summers like this, put dishes of water out. I put water out for the yard bunnies, so I figure the bees could always share from that. If you see a bee on the ground that appears to be struggling, it may just be resting, and you can help it get back on its way. Pick it up very gently and gently place it into a bee-friendly flower. Or if no flowers are around, mix some water and sugar together, white sugar, 50-50, and place a couple of drops and the bee in a shaded protected area where it can regain its strength. The water and sugar will provide the bee with the carbohydrates it needs to fly. But do not ever use brown sugar or offer honey. Believe it or not, either option has the potential to be harmful to the bees. One can also plant bee-friendly flowers and increase plant diversity on their property to improve the diets of local bees. And remember, less bees equals less plant diversity, and less plant diversity equals less animal diversity. And less plant and animal diversity leaves us with less to choose from in order to complete our diets. Saving the bees is a selfish act in the end. We benefit greatly from their presence. For my happy segment, I want to talk about the fact that I have my vaccination code. And by the time this goes out, my kids will have theirs as well. The Saturday after the kids reach two-week status, we're going to a favorite game shop called Amusing Games, and we can't wait. I haven't been to a game store in well over a year and a half, and that is too long. I've gotten to hug people, and it's been awesome. Pretty much everyone in my crew is going to have their cards or codes, so we're all good to go. By the time this goes out, I will have a couple of visits with large groups of friends whom I haven't seen in over a year. Probably about 30 people altogether, including kids. We may even have our annual New Year's board game night again this year. Someone tell Glenn and Kathy we're all showing up whether they like it or not. 
Just kidding, Glenn and Kathy. We won't barge your home without your consent. So consider this request for consent. I'm meeting people in person I've never actually seen. I'm seeing people in person that I don't live or work with. I feel like my time has come. My tunnel has reached its end. I'm breaking out into the light. And I'm an introvert, so I'll probably hate it a little bit. But at least I'll have the choice. Hooray! That's all I have for today. Thank you for joining me. Be good to each other and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me in two weeks for episode 44 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed what you just heard and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe, rate, comment, like, and share on your favorite podcast apps and all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and TikTok. And under LTE Pod on Twitter. There's also a Patreon under Living Through Extinction where you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more. If you have any corrections, questions, comments, or suggestions, or even just to say hi, email livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or send me a message through one of the social media pages.